Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 368 with my guest, Dr. Jenny Yip. We're going to uh, talk about OCD. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist, uh, It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. This show is part interview, uh, part listener confession via the surveys people fill out on our website. Uh, That website is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the Twitter and uh, Instagram handle that you can uh, find us at. And the Facebook page, I think, is uh, slash mentalpod. I have had a pretty, for those of you that are regular listeners, uh, you know that uh, something kind of kooky happened to me, uh, or I should say I witnessed uh, two weeks ago something that was pretty uh, traumatizing, numbing. I'm not sure what the word would be, but um, I think I shared last week uh, that my therapist had said, you know, be on the lookout. Uh, You know, uh, a lot of times after people see something that's traumatizing, uh, they'll experience sadness, grief, change in sleep or appetite, irritability. So I experienced the irritability uh, uh, about 10 days ago. And then um, the last couple of days, I, I don't I don't know, just this kind of, uh, oh, maybe this is the first time I use it on the show, malaise has kind of uh, come over me. I don't know, maybe I'm not getting enough sleep. Uh, Maybe I need to go back to ice cream. Maybe I need to shut the fuck up and read a couple of surveys. Attaboy, Paul. Now, that's that's my mean voice, mean DJ. Yeah, he's very critical of me. He is not not a fan of my work. 
this is a struggle in a sentence survey, and this is filled out by Sad Peach, and she writes about her anxiety. A shitty friend who won't stop texting you about all the weird stuff you did last night. Oh, that is so spot on. Thank you for that. Damn, that sucks, describes her sex addiction. I feel like the sexiest person in the world leading up to sex. I feel uneasy during it, and after, I feel disgusting. A snapshot from her life. I'm getting a divorce from my husband because I'm actually a lesbian. Instead of coming out to my conservative family about being gay, I had sex with seven, mon- seven men over a month-long period to try to convince myself I'm straight. Amazingly, the sexual promiscuity did not make me straight. But I did get multiple STDs at the same time. You can save money if you do that, but you have to know in advance that they're coming. Otherwise, when you check out at the counter, um, they're, they're going to charge you for each STD. This is uh, filled out. This is an awful moment filled out by uh, Angel. And uh, she writes, when I was 18 and still living at home, I got into a minor car accident. Just a fender bender, no injuries, but it still upset me. Later that same day, my parents were having company and I was to join them for dinner. About an hour before the guests arrived, my mom looked at me emotionlessly and said, you look traumatized. Go put on some makeup. Thank you for that. Logan describes his depression. I have to act like a person among other people today, and it feels like that entails doing a tap dance, wearing ice skates on a floor of bowling balls. Oh, that's so good. Thank you for that, Logan. Yeah. And maybe even bowling balls that were just handled by people who had just finished eating fried chicken with their fingers. Uh this is an awful moment as well, filled out by a woman who calls herself, I had a clever name, but then they shocked my brain. And uh, she writes, after months of severe depression, constant suicidal ideation, and multiple different treatments, including repeated hospitalizations, outpatient programs, two courses of ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy, also what used to be known as shock treatment, and lots and lots of therapy, I finally broke down and agreed to attend residential treatment. On my first day there, I met the therapist I would be working with. Upon walking into her office and sitting down on her couch, on her wall, I noticed a giant framed photo of the bridge I had planned on jumping off just days before coming there. Cannot make this shit up. Thank you for that. Uh, You know, one of the things I really love about doing this show is when you guys share moments that you are able to look back and, if not laugh at, no longer cry uh, about it's such a nice uh, respite from uh, from all the darkness. Uh, anxiety hangover describes his uh, anxiety. Like someone is expecting me to be everywhere all the time. That may be one of the best descriptions of anxiety I think I've ever... Uh, for me, it would, be, it would be like that, and then you add on top of it, um, not only are those... People expecting me to be everywhere all the time, but when I do get to where I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to do it perfectly, and if I don't, the people who are expecting that of me are all going to talk to each other and band together 
and abandoned me. <laughs> oh, thank you. Colorado Lobot describes, uh, gives us a snapshot from his life. His issues are depression, anxiety, being a sex crime victim. Um, uh, the abuser was a clergy member. Uh, and then uh, also anger and being a people pleaser. And uh, he writes, getting scared and constantly checking your watch when that old favorite safe movie, any Star Wars movie, is almost over because all that will be in the room when the credits are done are silence and you. That one hit me so hard. Oh man, do I know that feeling when it's back to reality, oblivion. When oblivion tapers off and reality sets back in, it is uh, like one of my favorite things in the world is sitting down and watching a movie that's like four hours long and you get maybe 15 minutes into it and you're like, this movie is going to hold my attention for four hours and and it's going to make me feel something. It's going to... I'm going to feel connected. Uh, Any comments to make the podcast better? Uh, Thank you for removing the taboo on being fucked up for me. Just hearing others talking and nodding my head when I hear exact thoughts that I've had is just so cathartic. It makes me cry uh, on the bike at the gym. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I've been thinking, thank you for your welcome and thank you for saying that. Uh, I think there should be a special machine at the gym for people who cry while they're listening to podcasts. And I don't know if it could be like a Stairmaster that's covered in terry cloth, or maybe they issue you a a special uh, absorbent helmet. But let's get on that. Somebody get on that. Um, I want to tell you uh, about a podcast that I was a guest on that is... uh, a great show, and it's it's hosted by two uh, really cool guys, Gabe Howard and uh, Vincent Wales, and uh, it's called uh, the Psych Central Show podcast. And it's if you've never been to the Psych Central website, it's a really great um, uh, place to learn about different diagnoses, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but their their show is they they discuss obviously mental health psychology. Uh, they have a lot of different experts on, um, and and it's it's definitely accessible. Sometimes it's fun, sometimes it's serious, but um, it's it's always interesting. And uh, you know, for instance, um, they'll do a, a topic like what is schizophrenia or why is sleep important? Why do adults have trouble making friends or how to work with a narcissist? So it's it's very hands-on and uh, I really enjoy the host and I enjoyed being a guest on there. So I just wanted to give them a, a, a little shout out and I'll put the uh, link to their website. But again, uh, it's called uh, the Psych Central Show podcast. Uh, so go check it out. Uh, want to... Give some love to our sponsor, our weekly sponsor, BetterHelp.com. I'm so grateful, not only for their continued advertising uh, on the podcast, but the therapist that they assigned me. Um, Because when I first uh, was approached, I said, well, I want to try one of your therapists. And, you know, before I recommend uh, 
better help. I want to see if, uh, you know, if it's a good product. And it is. It is a good product. Um, that's a weird thing, a product service. Uh, but it's online therapy. And I didn't know what to expect with online therapy. I was like, I've never done therapy video to video or, you know, over the phone or any of that. Uh, but it's great. I love my therapist and I talk to her every week. And she is, uh, as you've heard in the last couple of episode, uh, episodes, she is uh, highly, highly qualified. Um, and yeah, I just recommend it. So go to betterhelp.com slash mental. It's important you put in the slash mental so they know they came from from here. Uh, fill out a questionnaire and they'll, they'll match you with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if uh, online counseling is right for you. You need to be over 18 and you can communicate more than one time a week with, uh, with your therapist, uh, obviously depending on your schedules. Um, and you can do it through video, email, live text, chat, phone, uh, uh, smoke signal, skywriting, um, postal, <laughs> Pony Express. Oh, I fucked up that last joke. Anyway, they're great. I'll put the the link to that on our, uh, on our website. All right. Um, we're just about at the, at the interview. I just have a couple more, uh, uh, quick little surveys. I want you to hear, uh, hazy snooze and depression describes her love addiction. I want you to save me from the pain I will be in when you leave me because the deep connection between us is made up by my brain, but it might be all different this time. That is so fantastic. That is so fantastic. And it speaks to the power of addiction, the fact that she still battles it despite intellectually knowing what is going on. I mean, that is, in this episode coming up with uh, Dr. Jenny Yip uh, is another great example of the power of mental illness. She's an expert in OCD, and after having a baby, she experienced really, really intense, debilitating uh, OCD. Uh, Mermaid describes her depression like being in a cold room and wrapping yourself in so many blankets, now you don't know how to get out. This one, describing her PTSD uh, after experiencing a hurricane. Uh, she writes, It's the sound of leaves getting ruffled by a breeze, sending me into a state of fear and emergency. It's spending a hundred plus days without electricity. It's the thought of that sky, so white, that remained for a week after the storm. It's that snapshot of naked trees and crumpled up solar panels scattered everywhere. It's not being able to know if my boyfriend is safe. It's the crippling thought that hurricane season is in a couple of months and I am not ready to live this all over again. That is so descriptive. Thank you for that. Um, crying. <laughs> I love this name. Crying is a good ab workout. And she describes her uh, dissociating. Like you're lying in a tent at a campsite. And you can hear people talking outside, but they're not talking to you. So you don't listen to their words and don't think of responses. It's not your conversation to have, right? Except in reality, it's someone looking directly at you, speaking directly to you, but the real you is still lying in a tent somewhere. Fuck. That has to be so 
I don't even know the word for it, disconcerting. And then finally, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by uh, Ruthie Fudge, who is uh, gender fluid. And uh, they describe uh, their bulimia. Uh, Maybe eating a pizza, cake, and throwing it up will make me forget about all that dick I didn't want to suck, but did anyway. And then about their depression. Bipolar 2, the Jan Brady of depression. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom, people-pleasing, dread, silent, invisible, just wailing, stuck in the grip of the obsession, derealization, depersonalization, the suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get, you know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, (laughs) and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. (laughs) And I I didn't get that job. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Dr. Uh, Jenny Yip, uh, who is a clinical psychologist, and you have your PsyD, which is different than a PhD. Explain that to uh, listeners and I, me. I I can't get grammar right. I can't get doctorates right. (laughs) Well, um, PhD is a doctorate of philosophy. That's the traditional degree that you would earn. Um, However, these days in the last half a century, there is the PsyD, which is the doctorate of psychology, which is used more for clinical practice. Um, Most psychologists today with a PhD would be more interested in research. I got you. I got you. Uh, And did you specialize in something in your uh, uh, doctorate? I did. I specialize in obsessive compulsive disorder. Yay! (laughs) And uh, within postpartum depression or just in general? No. uh, OCD itself is a pretty huge specialization. And of course, within OCD, there are many subtypes and postpartum OCD is just one small subtype. Yes. OCD is New York. And then the subtypes are the boroughs. That's correct. You can think of it that <laughs> and way. And then the neighborhoods within the boroughs. <laughs> yes. Well, each subtype have very many different intricacies. It's a fascinating, fascinating, uh, what would you call it? Uh, disorder, yes. I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you also, uh, you have a book where you talk about perfectionism and anxiety and uh, you give tips for how people people can deal uh, with that. Uh, The other thing we want to talk about is uh, OCD, particularly uh, within postpartum depression, which I didn't even know was a thing until um, your publicist reached out to me and I was like, oh, that sounds like a fascinating topic. (laughs) So uh, which would you prefer to talk about first? Well, let's talk about postpartum OCD since... You know, you were surprised to hear that it I even was. existed. I was. As as I would imagine, many um, consumers, many mothers who are mm-hmm. suffering alone, 
And in fact, sadly, even many medical professionals and mental health professionals. The the thing that I have heard about is the intrusive thoughts, although I Mm -hmm. suppose that's a part of OCD, correct? Yes. Yes. Well, you know, in OCD, there are two parts. You have the obsession, the O, and you have compulsions, the C. And obsessions are the intrusive thoughts, sensations, images that repeatedly come into your mind and are uncontrollable. These are the, you know, the thoughts that make you feel like something bad will happening. It's frightening. It induces intense anxiety. And it's similar to having a nightmare that keeps replaying in your mind like a broken record. So if you can imagine never waking up from a nightmare, that's what um, having obsess- obsessions are like in OCD. Well, I did live through the 70s, so that's about as close <laughs> as, as close as I get. Um, it, the one that I hear uh, is the, uh, the mother who so badly wants to be able to feel love for her baby, but feels disconnected from it, feels sad, and has recurrent images of drowning her baby or throwing it off a balcony yes. or having sex with it. Or yes. um, Talk about that. Well, I mean, that sounds like postpartum OCD. Yeah. It, you know, there's the reality is there is very little information about it because it's a relatively new area of research. So there isn't even a lot of research on it. However, from the little research that exists, we know that it can occur in as many as 10 to 50% of new mothers. So that is a wow. lot. Um, and a lot of them are coming forward, mm, right? Actually not. And this is the sad part. The sad part is because the thoughts are so <sighs> grotesque and so Not morally grotesque, just yeah. graphically grotesque. Well, it could be graphically as well as morally. Because I, I, I guess what I was saying was uh, um, uh, objectively, they're not morally uh, grotesque subjectively to the person yes. they feel grotesque. Yes. I guess what I'm trying to say is anybody out there that's listening, these are not, if you're having these thoughts, these mm-hmm. are not a comment on your morality. That's this is, right. This is your brain, what, overheating or doing that's something. That's right. That's okay. right. Now, that is true. However, a new mother wouldn't know the difference. And I think that is why so many feel ashamed for having the thoughts. They feel um, they could be judged for having such thoughts and therefore they keep it to themselves and they suffer silently. And and the very thing that they should be experiencing in that moment is compassion, which is the exact opposite. Comfort. Somebody yes. saying, my God, that must be terrible. Yes. You're a beautiful person. This has nothing to do with you. This is an anima- mm-hmm. animation festival that crashed your brain. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, the reality is that motherhood, as I recently learned, is a very judgmental space. You have so many mothers and people um, judging each other, whether you're breastfeeding or not, whether you're feeding your babies organic or not, um, whether you're, you have, you take them to daycare or you have a nanny. I mean, there's so much judgment in the motherhood world that a woman experiencing OCD, these intrusive thoughts, well, it makes sense that she would feel uncomfortable disclosing them. And, you know, there are also 
a lot if you if you even go on blog forums and you read some of the comments of women who has experienced you know these intrusive thoughts postpartum some will even share with you that they would disclose this information to their pediatrician or to their uh family doctors or OBGYNs during postpartum care visits and many of them have been involuntarily hospitalized that is for fear that they would be um, a danger to their babies, which is that which shows the lack of awareness and understanding of the existence of postpartum OCD. So then, how do we delineate between the Andrea Yates who does actually kill her mm-hmm. children? Postpartum and, psychosis. Okay. Mm-hmm. So how does a GP? or even a lay person mm-hmm. understand when this is just an animation festival in their head or is this is something that's going to come to fruition? Well, I think to understand that, we have to first understand OCD, right? So again, you know, the O is the intrusive thoughts um, that you don't want to have, that makes you feel shameful and... Um, anxious and gross. Feeds the loop, right? Yes. Well, what feeds the loop is the compulsion. That's the C part. The compulsions are the things that you do in reaction to the obsessions. They are things that you do to help you feel better, to keep the bad things from happening. Um, In general, to undo the obsessions in order to gain temporary relief. So kind of a distraction and a soothing it could be, or it could be. Give some examples anything. so we we can get a clearer picture of. Sure. For so, example, an apo- a typical or ones that you have heard of obsessions, and then the compulsion coupled with. So it. let's talk about obsessions and compulsions that are common to postpartum OCD. Um, so common obsessive thoughts during the postpartum or perinatal period is fear of harm befalling your infant. Um, It could be accidental harm. It could be purposeful harm. It could be um, poisoning your child. It could be accidentally dropping your child. It could be purposely drowning your child. It could be um, molesting your child during diaper changes, any of which these, which is a com- really common one, especially yes. for women who um, experienced uh, sexual trauma. From from sure. my understanding, sure, yes, yes, yes. And it doesn't mean that they want no, <laughs> to no, and, do and, that. And that's the thing about OCD because the compulsion, because the the thoughts don't fit with your values. The thoughts don't fit with your belief in 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 your worldviews. Um, and therefore, you have these compulsions that serve to give you some sort of relief from the obsessions. The compulsions serve to undo the obsessions. So common compulsions would be reassurance seeking from family members, your spouse, your partner, uh, whether you're a bad mother, um, whether you're a bad parent. Um, it could be In- inclu- checking. Including che- uh, sharing what you're, what you're thinking or generally avoiding it that? It could be avoiding that. Okay. Um, you know, it could go either way. You could be sharing it with a close confidant or you could be completing a completely avoiding 
the topic. However, you have to realize that people with OCD are pretty savvy in their reassurance seekings. I mean, they can ask ten different questions in different ways. All related to the same topic, in order to gain some sort of certainty. Can you give me some examples? Okay, so I can ask, well, is this room safe? And how do I know that uh, the walls aren't too thin? And、um, what about the ceilings? I mean, there are cracks in the ceilings, and、um, sound can go through. How do you know that the ceilings, the, our, our voices, aren't going through the ceilings? Um, what if someone is right next door putting, you know, some sort of hearing device in the walls?、Um, what if someone is just waiting outside a door? So you can see how it can go on and on、I、and、see. on and on. Which must be exhausting if there's a partner. Very, <laughs> and having postpartum OCD can definitely interfere with. Um, family dynamics and especially your bonding with your baby. However, going back to the compulsions,、um, you could be engaged in checking to make sure that your baby is safe. You could be searching the internet to see whether your symptoms mean that you're a bad person. The thing to remember is that you're doing these compulsions in order to not have the intrusive thoughts. In order to get rid of the intrusive thoughts, because you don't believe that they fit with you and your values. If they were, if they were exciting you, that would be a different thing, correct? Sure. Yes. Yes, that would be a different thing. So, if it doesn't fit with your values, then the likelihood of you acting on the thought is almost non-existent because you don't you don't want to do it. Right, you have these thoughts that are gross and shameful and guilt-ridden, and you don't want to do it. So therefore, you're trying to get rid of the thoughts. Whereas a person with a postpartum psychosis, the thoughts that they have fit with their value system. They believe in the thoughts as real as fitting their worldview. Do, do they fit fit in their value system outside of their? Psychosis. Personality disorder or psychosis? Well, they can't tell the difference.、Okay. That's the thing about psychosis: is that you can't tell the difference between real reality that everybody else's that everybody else experience versus the reality that you experience. So that's the, that's like the,、wow. the hallmark of psychosis. So a mother having intrusive thoughts like.、Um, I'm getting messages that you know、um, God is telling me that if I don't drown and kill my babies, then the devil will take his soul, and therefore, in order to save my baby, I need to drown him and kill him. That's so heavy. And that thought is a thought that the mother would believe in, as if it is a real thought, as、and、opposed to it scaring her. Exactly, as opposed to oh my gosh, why am I having this thought? What does this mean about me? What kind of mother am I for having such a thought? I want to get rid of the thought. This thought makes me feel awful as a person, as a mother. So, give, give me a couple more examples of obsessions, and then the the compulsion coupled with them, and then let's talk about ideally how a mother and even her partner、uh, could. Help deal with that in a way that's healthy. Well, 
Um, I also want to say that postpartum OCD doesn't just occur to the mother. We in our, our research has shown that even fathers experience postpartum OCD. So the question is, well, how can a partner, male or female, um, support the other? And for anyone out there who's experiencing postpartum OCD, male or female, the most important thing to understand is that this is like your brain farting because mm. <laughs> the thoughts are not a production of something that is real. Just because you have a thought, it doesn't mean that you're going to act on it. It doesn't mean that um, the thought has any weight or substance. In fact, the reality is that many parents, many new parents, experience intrusive thoughts during the postpartum perinatal period. However, the difference between a person without OCD that experiences the intrusive thought is that this person can have the thought and go, oh, well, that was silly and be able to move forward and not not magnify it to any degree to give it more power. Whereas the person with OCD will have a thought and go, Oh my goodness, what in the world does that mean? And as soon as you do that, you're giving value and credence to the thought, which gives it more power and makes it more um, bigger than what it needs to be. The difference between the two, is it usually just uh, emotional education uh, that, that one person will react one way and the other will react another way? Just that, that one person realizes this is just my brain farting mm-hmm. um, because they have been educated that that is a thing. Um, well, uh, no, it's it it's not. It doesn't have to do with education. I mean, and I don't mean classical. You went to school, but no. I mean knowing the facts about it. Well, the difference is that. Those of us without OCD just don't give as much value to the thoughts that they have. They come and they go, and they're just thoughts. I see. Whereas a person with OCD, depending on what is significant or important to them, will give value and weight to the thoughts that might mean something negative about them. And therefore, it grows and becomes more powerful. What, what what does the uh, don't let me cut you off what finish your thought oh i was just going to say that even um you know that is a main differentiator between people without ocd and the general population and yeah. those who do have regular ocd and so what does the science suggest is behind this is this a genetic thing is it a chemical thing is it uh that's the that's the million dollar question right yeah um, you know, we what we do know is that research is indicating from all of the neural imaging study that there is a a messenger in the brain that's called the serotonin that is going haywire in your brain. And there is a communication error from the front part of your brain to the deeper limbic system. Off the brain. It so often seems like that's where the fuck up is, is between the, amyg- <laughs> the amygdala and the prefrontal All cortex. Of All of that. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So, you know, we know that is one of the problems. Now, we also know that genes play a role 
So do, so does the environment, though, because from twin studies, just because you have one twin that has OCD doesn't necessarily mean that the other twin will 100% also have OCD. So we know that even though genetics play a big role, because even in twin studies, there's a higher risk factor for the other twin to also have OCD. It's not 100%. So because of that, we know that there are environmental um, influences as well. Environmental influences can be a stressor. It could be um, a brain, a, a, an infection that a person has that, you know, switches a certain genes on or off. Um, epigenetics is a fascinating area right now where, you know, we know just because you have certain genes, it doesn't mean that those genes will turn on or off. Depending on what happens in the womb, you know, your your environment, um, the the hormones that go through into the womb from the mother, I mean, all of that has an influence. So do we know exactly what is the cause? No, we, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. So ideally, how would you suggest someone handle this when they begin experiencing it? Well, the very most important thing is to know that your thought is a thought is a thought. Just because you have the thought, it doesn't make the thought real. In fact, we all have negative, horrible thoughts. It doesn't make us horrible people. So we have the thought, doesn't mean you'll act on it. And the most important point to understand is that during, you know, the postpartum period, the goal is to be able to bond with your baby. And if you have these intrusive um, thoughts as well as repetitive compulsive behaviors that are interfering with that bonding process, and if you are sanitizing bottles, um, washing, cleaning, checking your baby at the expense of your sleep, which is already deprived to begin with during this period, then it's really important to seek help. Because again, you have to prioritize what the important thing is right now. And it's not about judgment from other parents or other mothers. Who the fuck cares about them, right? The important point here is that you prioritize yourself and your baby and you do what's necessary to make that happen. And if that means seeking out a professional who can help you, then that's what you do. Because, you know, the treatment is very, very effective. It's short term. It's called cognitive behavior therapy and more specifically exposure and response prevention therapy. And I had to do it myself for my own postpartum OCD experience, which was horrible and torturous. What a perfect time for you to share your story. Yes. If you're yes. comfortable. <laughs> yes. Well, um, uh, you know, I've battled OCD since the age of four. So I'm very, very, very familiar with OCD. Um, I come from a family with many members with OCD. And in, in, grad school, I kind of just knew that I would um, treat people with OCD because in the 70s and 80s growing up with OCD, there wasn't much information on it. Um, 
nobody knew what to do with me, pediatricians, therapists, nobody knew what to do with me. And I suffered for a very long time. How did, it, how did your OCD present itself? Uh, washing was the worst. Um, I would wash, I mean, start out with just hand washing and then to showering routines and it had to have a sequence of what had to happen first, second, third. If the sequence was ruined, I'd have to redo the whole showering process. I mean, I remember later on in my late 30s, my parents, you know, would say, well, if only we had given you our, our water bill, maybe that would have stopped you. <laughs> and I was, and I said, yes, you're right. It probably would have stopped me from <laughs> showering so much. Um, so in my early teens and hold, hold that thought for one second. Was there a thought that, that the compulsion was trying to distract you from? No, the, the obsession was it. I, I just wanted to be clean. You, you felt germ, germy, germy. I mean, okay. I, I didn't want to get sick. Um, um, maybe give you, giving you a little bit more background. I was born with heart disease and therefore I spent the first five years of my life mainly living out of hospitals. Oh, no. So I think that probably added to the fear of, um, you know, contamination and germs and whatnot. However, I mean, OCD morph itself, you know, over time. So something that starts small over time becomes more intricate, more complicated. And, you know, you know, the way that I that I describe it to my patients, it's like having a web of various um, rules that you have to follow. And if you don't follow these rules, then something bad might happen. And you don't want that uncertainty. So you do what's necessary to make sure that the bad thing doesn't happen. And, and can sometimes the uh, ominous thing just be a general feeling that that chaos will ensue? And oh, I yes, it could be just a feeling that it's just not right. It doesn't feel right, and therefore I have to do what's necessary to feel right. Um, so, you know, my teens, I was washing, and then later on it got to symmetry and exactness. I remember my 16th birthday party. I was three hours late to my 16th birthday party, and by the time I actually got there, half of the people had already left my party. Mm. Um, so it was it was. To pretty bad to technically technically your 16.03 birthday party <laughs> yes yes you can put this it that is way my lame my lame attempt to <laughs> inject humor wherever possible um so so then so um in, you know so i knew i was going to go into treating people with ocd and as I became a specialist and, um, you know, treated women with postpartum OCD, kids with OCD, worked with families with OCD, I just never realized that I would be debilitated by OCD again. I never realized that OCD would surface again. I just thought I'm done <laughs> i know about it i know, I know it. about yeah. it i'm an expert in it i know what to do this thing will never get to me again and lo and behold in my weakest moments 
with sleep deprivation, OCD reared its ugly head again. What a testament to the power of mental illness. It's like, you know somebody is a convicted liar (laughs) and you believe them. Right, right, right. I mean, to me, that means there has to be a chemical mm-hmm. element yes. it would uh yes. the the precision what give me some examples of of the preciseness uh compulsion that you had well my postpartum ocd was a lot more creative than it ever had been well, that's a plus. Um, <laughs> which made it much more difficult to recognize yeah So I had twins, and my OCD fear was that I would love one twin more than the other, and in some weird OCD way, would cause harm to their emotional development over time. So um, my compulsions were anything from making sure that whatever I did for one twin was exactly the same as the other twin. So if I fed the twin breastfed, of course, for those judgmental mothers out there, (laughs) (laughs) Um, if I breastfed one twin a certain amount of time, I had to make sure that I breastfed the other baby a specific amount of time. And then would you switch up who breastfed first so that one yes. didn't feel left yes. out? Because oh, yes. that's what I was sitting here oh, thinking. Yes. Like, Not only yes. that, but you know, it becomes so complicated. It's like, well, how do you even measure the amount of milk that comes out? You know, this, right. this one breast produce more than the other. And, and you know, um, how, do you, how do you calculate all of that? So it became very, very intense. Um, scrubbing bottles. Am I scrubbing exactly the same way for one twin versus the other? Um, diaper changes. Is it exactly the same way? Am I bathing them exactly the same way? And in that moment, were you recognizing that this is OCD? Oh, no. What? No, I did not recognize it was OCD till a few weeks later. I mean, OCD... Uh, it, it it came like out of nowhere, and it came within the first week um, after giving birth. Um, but the most exhausting part I recall, I remember right now, is at the end of each night, I had to compare the type of thoughts, the content to the thoughts, my emotional reaction to each of the thoughts, comparing and contrasting the thoughts of for one twin versus the other. And that was by far the most exhausting part of the of the disease because I mean something that I'm doing physically it's easier to measure. However, how in the world do you compare the thoughts that you have for one boy versus the other? That's what Excel is for. <laughs> If I had time to type it all in, I probably would have. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) So I drove myself insane um, and cried a lot and then realized that, uh, yeah, this isn't postpartum depression. It's not postpartum blues. Um, And it was OCD. And once I realized that, then it was almost like suddenly the weight dropped 
and the the power and the value of the thoughts of the intrusive thoughts decreased dramatically. So that was my start um, to. So- so is it technically called postpartum OCD, not postpartum depression OCD? No, no, oh, okay. no. In fact, you know, a lot of women are misdiagnosed with postpartum depression where they actually have postpartum OCD. Can the two go hand in hand? Oh, of course. I mean, okay. I was definitely depressed at that point for not, you know, um, feeling the bliss that you're supposed to have during this period. Um, I was feeling depressed about having these intrusive thoughts of my boys, um, fearing that something might happen to them if I wasn't doing enough. Um, it was it was pretty intense. And was there a partner there? Mm-hmm. And how did they react? Uh, my husband was just as supportive as he can be. Um However, it's really hard to understand the experience of OCD unless you actually have it. You know, I think if I think back to all of the movies or um, jokes that the media has about OCD, um, the media, you know, makes it as a quirky behavior Mm -hmm. that's just funny. And, um, you know, how many times have you had a friend who says, oh, that's just OCD, that's just my OCD, or I'm just so OCD. And some people have absolutely no idea the the prison that you live in when you have OCD. And a a lot of people... Uh, I think, look at somebody with OCD and think that person just lacks logic. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they understand that it's... It's uh, not logic at all, because a person with these intrusive thoughts and these silly behaviors um, understand that it's irrational. They they realize that what they're doing doesn't make sense, that what they're doing is excessive, is... However, they just can't help it. And is it because the feeling is so powerful in them mm-hmm. that it feels like they would, you know, to give in, to do nothing about that feeling mm-hmm. um, would be just, terrifying? Yes. More terrifying than continuing the yes. exhausting yes. compulsion schedule. Yes. So, for example, um, you know, for me, it wasn't, it, you know, was fearing that I would be treating the twins differently. However, like most parents with postpartum depression, one of my biggest fears was that one of them could die or both of them could die. And I remember one of the things I had to do, I mean, there's so much information about SIDS out there and there's actually so much technology to prevent SIDS that, you know, well, that's a different conversation um you know for those that don't know at sids is sudden infant death syndrome yes yes which is like the nightmare of every newborn new new parent parents right um and the the i i remember I remember that I had to put my hands on 
each child's chest to make sure that they were breathing because seeing them breathe, hearing them breathe just wasn't enough. And the thought of them dying was unbearable. So to prevent the thought, I had to keep checking at the expense of sleeping which is insane in and of itself because you're already sleep deprived. However, the thoughts are so strong and the feeling is so intense that you can't help it. So in order to prevent the uncertainty that something might happen to your child, you go and you check and you check and you check and you check because checking once is never enough for OCD. And OCD thrives on uncertainty and doubt. So it makes you feel that you have to be certain that your child is breathing and you cannot be away from your child because if you go away and your child stops breathing and it's something that you could have prevented, then you won't be able to live with yourself. You wouldn't be able to live with yourself. Right. So guess what the treatment is, though? <laughs> if OCD thrives on uncertainty and doubt, the treatment is to expose yourself to that uncertainty and doubt. So you surround yourself with dead infants. <laughs> well, um, that could be one way. <laughs> Although it, that it really you, low budget therapy. Yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> That's how I deal. Right. That's how I deal with when I get uncomfortable. Right. Um, so the treatment is exposure and response prevention. And what this means is that you are exposing yourself, confronting to your fears in a gradual manner so that you can realize that your fear doesn't actually have any substance. And if your fear doesn't have any substance, then there is no point in engaging in any compulsive behaviors. Because if your fear doesn't have weight, then the compulsions don't serve a purpose. And that is what exposures are. And response prevention is basically learning to break OCD rules to the point where the compulsive behaviors are weakened. And I had to go through my own torturous exposures where I had to accept that I can't prevent uncertainty, that anything might happen to my children. I had to accept the uncertainty that they might die before I do. I had to visualize 
all of the possible ways that they could die before I do. And、um, that was part of the of the intended process、yes. of exposure. Yes, that must have been. That emotionally was wrenching. <laughs> that was hell. I mean, I can speak of it now、um, without so much emotional reaction to it because I've done my exposures, and exposures. It's kind of like you know, if you if you repeat any thought for a prolonged period of time, the thought loses its meanings. It actually becomes boring. Even though initially it's very powerful, however, if you keep thinking the exact same thought, it loses its power. So I had to go through my own torturous exposures that I've, you know, prescribed to many of my patients at the Renewed Freedom Center.、Um, and over time, and it took a while, the thoughts have. Had less and less and less power and substance. Describe, if you can, what it felt like in your body when it was at its worst, and your body, both your body and your and your、um, uh, your emotions when it was at its worst, and then compare it to when you felt like I'm I'm starting to feel free. From this, I'm always interested to know what <laughs> physiologically is going on in people. I find it so fascinating. It for me, it felt like I was stuck in a black hole, and it was doom, and there was no way out. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. It was just complete darkness, hopelessness, helplessness. And、was it an, an empty feeling inside you? Not necessarily empty. Maybe the exact opposite of emptiness. Overwhelmed. Completely、kind of. overwhelmed.、Um, it was hard for me to look at my babies without having horrible thoughts that I might lose them. It was like. I better save her. I better save every single moment. I better collect every single one of my memories. I better make the best of the times that I do have with them, because who knows? They could be taken from me at any time. Was there sadness in there as well? Absolutely. So sadness, anxiety, sadness, panic, anxiety, panic, doubt, doubt, shame, hopelessness, fear. Um. Shame, not so much for me,、um, because you know I I know that thoughts are thoughts are thoughts.、Mm. However, thoughts can be powerful. Yeah.、Um, so not so much shame and guilt. Dread. You know, dread. Dread facing the day, waking、dread. up. No, I couldn't wait to wake up and be with my boys. It was dread. Having to go to sleep to be away from my boys,、oh. and the uncertainty of what might happen if I was asleep and not there to save them for from whatever catastrophe that might happen. Did you, when you were going through the exposure therapy, and it was the the scariest of the scary 
things, imagining what it would be like if they died. Were any connections made um, between you and your past, or was it um, not something that is typically included uh, in it? No. I mean, OCD can be triggered from past traumas. It could be triggered from, um, you know, a catastrophic moment or a perceived catastrophic moment from your past. However, um, OCD gains power over whatever you care about in the moment. Say that again. OCD gains power from whatever you care about in the moment, in this moment. So So if this very moment you care about your body image because you're auditioning to be a Victoria's Secret model, then you might end up having, you know, body image obsessions and compulsions, Um, which is why, you know, with postpartum OCD, the common obsessions and compulsions are related to harm befalling your infant because you have this over sense of responsibility. And this is true for all new parents. You have this over sense of responsibility for this new innocent life who is completely dependent on you. And whatever you do will determine what happens to this innocent Baby. It sounds so much uh, so similar to hypervigilance. It is hypervigilance oh, it in is. a sense. Okay. Yes, yeah. because what is hypervigilance? Hypervigilance is when you're hyper focused on something. For those of us with anxiety, OCD, that something is potential threat to your well being. And therefore, your fight or flight alarm turns on. And it's almost like you have these antennas that go up and it is searching for potential danger. Mm. Well, the thing is, if you are looking for threats, you're going to find it. Oh, yeah. Right? So therefore, if you're paying attention. Yes. Well, well, that's that's what, you know, your fight or flight response will do. It's going to increase your awareness. It's going to increase your your alertness. And therefore, your your brain will start looking for these threats. It's, it's like it takes everything you love and it turns it into glass. Yes. You better be yes, careful. That's right. That's right. Do you think it's a vestige of us needing our amygdala more when when we were, uh, you know, cave people? <laughs> well, <laughs> and I'm, now it's just spinning. It's like, you know, come on, man, let the clutch out. Let's go. Well, I mean, unless we can examine the brains of cave people, I don't know that we can make that, you know, distinction. Um, I'm sure that there's a few in the political <laughs> arena. <laughs> we might be able to. Well, I'm sure that people back then had their own um, fears. You know, I think the difference is that today the fears that we have aren't as warranted. And yet, you know, your limbic system is a very, very old uh, brain structure or structures. And therefore, um, we still carry on and hold on to those uh, fears that don't really serve a purpose in today's world. 
Anything else that you'd like to uh, touch on? In um, oh, uh, and, sh- and then share when you finally felt like you were free of it. Share if you would in- internally and physiologically, uh, if you can recall what you remember feeling. Sure. Um, you know, I think the main difference was that I wasn't bonding authentically with my boys um, when I had postpartum OCD. Um, everything that I did was in service of OCD. It was in order to make sure something bad didn't happen. And when I was finally able to gain, to gain some breathing room, I was able to bond with my boys for the sake of bonding. It was authentic. It was genuine. I was with them without any interference of intrusive mm-hmm. thoughts without any uh, need to obey certain rules in order to make sure nothing bad would happen. So I think that's the biggest It's difference. striking how similar it is to codependency, you know, because codependency so often comes from a place of emptiness and fear mm-hmm. and, and feeling like I'm a terrible person if I don't mm-hmm. do this thing that I really don't want to do, but I feel obligated to do it. Whereas if you... You're, you enjoy your life and you're filled with self-love. It's you're giving right. from a place of abundance. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know what? The it, It's very similar to family members who have a loved one with OCD, right? Because OCD doesn't just affect you. It affects the entire family system. And therefore, if you have OCD, you your compulsions would definitely involve another family member, whether you are avoiding opening the doors and therefore you have a family member opening the doors for you or you are seeking reassurance. Is it okay for me to touch this? Is it is a knife okay for me to hold? Am I a bad person? It will definitely involve another person. Now, if you can imagine compulsions, remember, it's not just one. One is never enough. So you have to repeat it again and again and again. And if your loved one is involved in those compulsions, can you imagine how overwhelmed the loved mm, one would be? And resentful. And resentful. And exhausted. And exhausted, exactly. So, you know, family members have to understand that in order to support your loved one, you have to differentiate supporting the sufferer versus supporting OCD. Talk about is that. What, well, is, is opening the door helping the loved one or helping OCD get stronger, right? In order for a person to recover from OCD, to um, reduce their OCD fears, it means that you have to disobey OCD's rules. It means that you have to resist the compulsions, meaning... That if OCD is telling you to don't open that door, then what is it that you have to do? Open that door. door. And then the loved one will have to let you open that door. Now, of course, all of this is much easier said than done. Oh, man. uh, I'm getting anxious just imagining two people that live together and Mm -hmm. the partner living through watching their partner just uh, suffer Mm -hmm. and knowing that it's for the best ultimately, but there's got to be gray area in there where you 
want to support them, but you don't want to enable them. I mean, of course. To, to, to talk about of course. that. That's so. So, you know, if if the goal is to let the person open a door, it means that you have to sit with your own discomfort, right? Because that's what we're asking the sufferer to do: to sit with your discomfort, expose yourself to the fear, confront your fear, and not follow OCD's rules so that you learn, your brain learns that you don't have to do any of these rules. By doing nothing, anxiety has to dissipate on its own. So, of course, like I said, it's all easier said than done. So what that means is, let's say that you have a couple and you have dinner reservations at 7 p.m. And That's a little of, late, but go ahead. Okay, 6 p.m. That's better. <laughs> However, you have one partner who can't get out of the door. And, of course, it's just much easier. It, it, let's say, you know, it's, it's uh, 5.30 now. You guys need to leave the house. So, of course, it's just much easier to just open the damn door, right, so that you guys can get on your way. Except if you are committed to supporting your partner, the thing to do would be to, well, I guess dinner isn't important. And therefore, let's just cancel dinner until you can open this door. Or let's just see if, you know, we can um, open the door halfway. So maybe uh, let's... Take a tissue paper. You, I'll let you use a tissue paper. Touch the doorknob to open the door. However, then I want you to hold on to that tissue paper so that the tissue paper is still on you if it's for contamination reasons. Um, now, it's easier with an adult. However, what if you have a child? And let's say you're at the grocery store and the child refuses to open the door. And the child ends up having a meltdown at the grocery store and is tantruming at the grocery store. As a parent, your job is to be present with your child. Are there kids that don't have tantrums at grocery stores? <laughs> well, there are some kids who don't have tantrums at grocery stores, sure. Um, however, just because a child has tantrums, it doesn't mean that child is a bad child. Um, and a child might actually have fears and OCD, right? So sorry, I got you off track. Go ahead. Go That's back. okay. Um, so as a parent, your job is to be present with your child, show your child that you understand how hard it is. However, you can't do the job for the child. You can't do the work for the child. And the two of you will sit there and... Um, be there until the child feels capable of opening that door. I would imagine that the manner in which you do that is incredibly important, that yes. you be patient yes. and compassionate yes. and and not show irritation. Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, I mean, if there are any parents or family members with a loved one suffering from OCD where it is 
keeping the person from functioning, from going to school, from going to work, from engaging in social activities or hobbies that they previously enjoyed, you would want to find a therapist who has experience treating OCD with exposure and response prevention therapy and um, who can help you set up these goals. Because what you don't want is a parent to go, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm not supposed to be opening this door for you. And therefore, you're just going to have to open it yourself. Well, no, you don't do it like that. You know, and in family sessions, you make a plan and everyone agrees to that plan. (coughs) Mm -hmm. And then you go about to do the exposures. You have to learn how to do exposures. Um, and then most of all, you have to be patient. You have to be willing to cancel plans. You have to be willing to be late to things. You have to be willing to even leave your child behind if your child is refusing to leave the house. So these are all important factors that a therapist will walk you through and will guide you through. So it sounds like you're you're separating the person from the illness. Yes, absolutely. The person is not the illness. And you have to realize that what you're doing have to serve the best interests of the child, not yeah. yourself, not your insecurities, not your discomfort from watching the child in, t- you know, having a tantrum. Um what is in the best interest of this child? That is the question that I think all parents need to be asking in anything they do. Is what I'm doing in the best service of the child? Hint, hint, helicopter parent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're not meaning that in a good way, are you? Oh, that's a different topic for another okay. <laughs> time. Uh, well, I, I'm uh, surprised at, at how much... Uh, there was to to talk about this i i didn't think uh this would be as expansive and uh enlightening uh as it is so well, thank you so much thank you so much for uh, sharing your personal uh story that was really touching and i appreciate you um opening up about that well i hope that gives some um, uh hope to many more women who feel like they might be judged negatively, that there's actually help out there. And the thoughts that you have, the experiences that you have is not uncommon and it's not shameful. And again, who the hell cares about what other people think? I do, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) Uh, people can find you where? Uh, They can find me on my website, which is uh, www.renewedfreedomcenter.com. Okay, we'll put links to this uh, up on the website. And uh, we didn't get to talk about perfectionism. We'll we'll save that for another uh, episode, um, which is my way of saying you have no choice. You're coming back. Uh, (laughs) I'd be happy to. But but what is the name of uh, the book about perfectionism? It's it's called Productive Successful You and Procrastination by Making Anxiety Work for You. Great. Uh, We'll put a link up for that as well. And um, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Man, what a great guest. That was so informative and, and, uh, and moving. Um, and a great example, too, that therapists are human beings. A lot of times I think we put them on this pedestal um, and think, you know, oh, they won't be able to relate to me. 
because they got it all figured out. Um, before I uh, take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys that there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast. If you feel uh, so inclined, you can support us financially uh, because we really depend on uh, on you helping us and we can always use uh, more funds to help keep the podcast going. Um, you can make a one-time PayPal donation through our, uh, there's a link on our website, uh, or you can become a recurring monthly donor through Patreon, and then I can reward you with occasional bonus content or silly little things from my life. Occasionally, I'll have a raffle uh, for uh, monthly donors, um, and uh, all of this is on the on the website. You can um, help us out non-financially by going uh, on social media and spreading the word about the podcast. That's a really, really big way to help Um because advertising uh, comes and and goes, and but uh, having monthly donors, that consistent base, uh, helps me sleep at night. And you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month recurring donation. No, no donation is is too small. Um, I know there's probably another. Oh, you can also buy uh, T-shirts. We have some really cool T-shirts. Um, we have ones with the logo, the show's logo on it. We have some with sayings from the show. We have one that has a picture of uh, my late dog, Herbert, and it says St. Herbert, and it has like my favorite picture of him on it. Um, all right, let's get to some surveys. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Dead Girl Walking, and she writes about uh, depersonalization and derealization. She writes... Uh, it makes it seem like my reflection is a Picasso painting. And then she gives a snapshot. Moments ago, I was examining my face in the mirror. As I looked at myself from different angles, I swore I felt like I was staring at a stranger. Each swivel of my neck transformed me into a different, odd-looking creature. I am so detached from myself. I don't even know what the fuck I look like. Looking back at old selfies, I don't even know who that bitch is either. She's kind of cute, though. Thank you for that. This is a happy moment filled out by a Mermaid. And these are actually a um, little kind of sublime uh, loves of, of hers. Uh, she writes, uh, looking down at my watch at work and realizing there are only 10 minutes left on my shift. Putting that last period on the essay, essay I procrastinated because it gave me anxiety. Uh, when this guy gets the blue mixed with oranges and purples. When the lady at the coffee shop remembers I like almond milk on my morning cup. That time my coworker walked in on me, passing in an, ang an ang anxiety attack inside the meat freezer, and he didn't laugh or look at me wrong, just asked me what he could do to make it better. Oh, that's so sweet. Uh, and then anything that proves my brain wrong, since it's so persistent on the thought that I'm not enough. Thank you for that. I uh, my shrink has me cutting back on my dose of Wellbutrin, and um, I, I feel like I'm talking slower and uh, just a little bit spacey. I don't know if you guys can tell, but I just feel like I'm just a little bit off. Uh, this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Don't You Care. And about her love addiction, she writes, Dying inside because I know I'll never be happy in this relationship, but hiding it behind a smile and saying, I love you first because he might leave me if he suspects. 
about her OCD, quickly cleaning and putting away the kitchen knives after preparing dinner in case I lose control and accidentally stab my boyfriend. I love, too, that those two are right next to each other. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, just Josh. Uh, this is kind of a heavy one. Um, he he struffles, suffers uh, with uh, depression, anxiety, sex addiction, and anger issues. And a snapshot from his life, he writes, uh, I want my wife to watch as I hang myself so she can see my pain. And, um, you know, Josh, I, I just want to say, number one, I'm sorry that you're in so much pain. And um, it, I, I, I can't imagine what it feels like from what you're describing. I've never... I've wanted to die before, but I've never wanted what you describe. And the first thought that occurred to me when I read this was his wife should know that he's in pain. And if she can't handle a partner expressing their feelings, um, then you're worthy of better than a partner who can't empathize with you. Um, and of course, there, you have a responsibility to her to work on yourself, uh, but she also has a responsibility, uh, like you, to work on herself and both of you to work on your relationship. And it's so easy to just sweep shit under the rug and go to our addictions and our life gets small and we isolate and we just pile on the shame and then the, the, you know, compulsive behaviors to try to numb the shame. And it's a vicious cycle that just push, pushes us closer and closer to the brink. And I've lived it. It's no way to live. Um, I really, really recommend uh, couples counseling or um, even individual counseling. Um, if you haven't gotten help yet for your addictions, that's a great place to start as well. Um, but sending you some love, man. This is a happy moment filled out by Rachel, and she writes, uh, right now, right now, I'm sitting at the kitchen table that belonged to my grandparents with my crochet tools and yarn, learning from a book I got to borrow from a library that is just a 10-minute walk away. I just finished eating a nourishing veggie soup my sister made for me after putting my two kids under the age of five to bed all by myself. I did not yell at them once today. I did not get a break until now. And I did it all without alcohol. I feel so fucking accomplished today. In the moments when I was tested with a child spitting at me or hitting me, I just breathed and repeated how kind we need to be to each other. And it worked. I have worked so very hard to get to this table today. I've been through outpatient programs, a hospitalization, a suicide attempt, and a few different cocktails of medications. And here I am seemingly on the right cocktail of meds and working with the skills I've learned. Motherfucker, I feel like Wonder Woman with a gentler version of the hot bod. Softer, if you will. That was beautiful. Thank you for that, Rachel. And I love how you included your the work that you put in, that you didn't just wait for your life to get better, that you had a moment of clarity, that you needed to put effort into it to be able to cope and have a large life, which clearly you do. And uh, that is 
just a a shining example to me of the payoff when we're committed to getting better. Uh, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Not Paul, and she describes um, her depression, a snapshot of it. Even though I just got a new job, I sit in the dark parking lot thinking, what's the point to any of this? Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah, I think so many of us have had that feeling. I remember washing dishes one time when my depression was at its worst and just thinking, this dish is just going to be dirty again. This is just a ridiculous cycle of hassles. And the only thing that took me out of it was drinking. And I knew that was making me more suicidal. And... uh Lo and behold, I discover that uh, actually life can be enjoyable, but sitting and wishing it would be better never did anything uh, for me. So I had to suffer for a good oh, 12, 13 years until I could no longer deny that it wasn't working my way. But uh, thank you for sharing that. And um, I think a lot of people feel that way that you shared, especially if they work in advertising. <laughs> uh, this is an awful moment from Skewered Tits. And she writes, uh, uh, Alexa, I want to die. Long pause. Alexa, sorry, your Echo Dot just lost its connection. <laughs> Oh, you can't make it up. You can't make it up. And then finally, this is a happy moment from Graveyard Cat, uh, who is gender fluid, and they write, It's raining out. I'm sitting in my apartment, which is above a barn full of horses. This has always been my dream. My abuser not only doesn't live here, she doesn't have my address. It feels like this safe haven, and it is clean because my depression has lifted enough for me to tidy up and dust. I'm at my laptop getting work done that I will get paid for because I'm in a place where I can be productive. My beloved 12-year-old dog is snoring on the couch. My older cat is curled up on my lap purring. My wild child of a kitten, who I love endlessly, comes parading into the room with a prize in her mouth, a cat toy she found under the bed that's probably been there for months and drops it at my feet. I'm so overwhelmed by how good this feels to me how peaceful, how everyone's needs are met, how I've actually made some progress in my life, how, how I've earned the trust of all of these animals who came from tough places, that my eyes fill with tears and I stop what I'm doing to come fill this survey out. <laughs> Thank you for that. Man, Ivy has been so sweet lately when I've been going to back to uh, my ex's house to uh, let her out. And um, it's so weird, though, because I can never just fully experience being present with with her. She's 14 without also projecting into the, what her death is going to look like and what it's going to feel like and just dreading the heartache uh, after, uh, after Herbert in uh, May of last year. Anyway. 
And let's end on an up note for fuck's sake. Um, thank you guys for filling out your surveys. To anybody uh, who's out there struggling, um, never forget that while the circumstances of your life may seem unique, the feelings that you are experiencing and maybe feeling overwhelmed by are not. They are universal and you are not alone and help is there. It just takes getting out of your comfort zone and asking for it. And if it doesn't work out, keep trying because you will eventually find the help, not only that you need, but that you deserve so that you can become the authentic you that's always been there. And uh, that's it. That's all I got. I felt like I was going to add something more, but I think it might have been gas. You're not alone, and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely